You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. After a month-long series about bettering ourselves and bettering our careers with a focus on storytelling, I am very excited and grateful to be sharing today's episode with you. It features a television legend who has worked with some of the biggest names in American theater as well. Michael Learned has been telling stories and portraying iconic characters for 60 years, and she has graciously joined me today for a personal and honest conversation, not only about her storied career, but personal highs and lows as well. You know, I, was, uh, I wasn't smart enough to know quite how to handle it. So I take full responsibility for what happened. And I didn't work again for 10 years. It was, um, it was a tough time. Hello and welcome to Why I'll Never Make It or Win Me for Short, one of Feedspot's top 25 theater podcasts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for almost 30 years. Each week, you'll learn from fellow actors and creatives as we explore the challenges of trying to make it in this business. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com. There, you can sign up for the monthly newsletter, support and donate to this podcast, as well as get info on other artist resources. Learn about all that and more at whyillnevermakeit.com or click on the link in the show notes. In this day and age of everything going digital, and especially with Zoom becoming an important part of both personal and professional connections, it's a very rare moment when I have to have a phone interview. But back in August of this year, I had the privilege of calling up a wonderfully talented actress, both on stage and on screen, the four-time Emmy winner, Michael Learned. Now, though she is best known for playing Olivia Walton, the mother on the long-running 70s TV show The Waltons, it's important to point out that she has had a stellar Broadway career as well, which began in 1969 with a production of Anton Chekhov's The Three Sisters, produced in association with the San Francisco-based American Conservatory Theater. But as you'll hear in this intimate and revealing interview, she also had to face her own struggles and disappointments. She opens up about divorce, alcoholism, and regret. We also discuss the evolution of women's roles on television and the stage. And Michael confesses her true feelings of playing Olivia all those years on The Waltons. She has such depth of knowledge and experience, so we start off by talking about her longevity as an actress and what has kept her going for 60 years. Well, welcome, Michael Learned, to the podcast. This is truly an honor to have you here. I'm, I'm so thankful for you joining me. Well, it's my honor. Thank you for having me. Now, I wanted to start out talking about your career as a whole, which has lasted about six decades now. And I'm curious, what do you... Oh, you had to rub it in. Right. Huh? Well, well, I mean, I think that's something all of us actors hope for, that we can have such a long career. What do you attribute this longevity to? I don't know. Just sheer luck, I guess, and perseverance. Um, I've never been ambitious, so I've been so lucky 
I've had a lot of luck. In fact, I, I basically got into the theater years ago in Toronto, in Canada, on the shirt tails of my ex-husband, Peter Donat, the father of my kids. You know, he was older than I, and he would work at the Stratford Festival, and they'd occasionally throw me a, a little part in something. And um, that was kind of the beginning for me of my so-called theatrical career. Obviously, I think luck plays a big part in in all of our career. You know, we audition and we hope we get it. And so many factors go into whether we get a callback or whether we book a role. But at the same time, you had mentioned perseverance as well. And what was it that made theater, that made acting something that you wanted to persevere through and continue to pursue? Well, I I remember sitting on stage at, at the American Conservatory Theater and we were doing Dylan Thomas's Under Milkwood. And I can remember a flash of my heart just kind of swelled. And I thought, am I not the luckiest person in the world to be sitting here on stage dealing with these wonderful words? And I've always felt that way about the theater. It's like going to church for me in a way. I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but, you know, the theater is my kind of church. And to be up there and working with Shakespeare or some of the Edward Albee or any of these wonderful spiritual great writers, it to me is beyond description. I really feel such enormous gratitude. It was my education, really. I I got married when I was 16, so I never even finished high school. But I read Shakespeare and some of the great classics, and I was always a reader. And that was basically my education. I think not only in educational terms, I also think in just life terms. I think theater and the performing arts gives us uh, an education on how to be ourselves and and how we relate to other people. Would you find that to be the same in your career? That's so interesting. I, I never thought of that. But of course, you have to go inside and examine yourself and what you can bring to any given role to, to look for the truth of the character you're playing, even though it's not, you know, hopefully you're interpreting someone else and not yourself. You're interpreting the playwright's character, but you do have to find your own truth and bring that to the character that you're playing. So yes, there's a certain amount of self-analysis and truth that goes along with a lot of uh, psychological therapy as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I I think therapy helps us all. That is for sure. Yep. (laughs) Right? You know, I sort of take each day as it comes. Um, That's part of being old, I guess. But the theater to me is home. Every time I walk into a theater or every time I'm backstage in a in a theater, I feel like I, somehow I just feel like I'm home. It's like my nest, if you will. So in that sense, theater hasn't changed. And most theaters have been around for a long, long time. There's, I've even worked up here in Wisconsin at the little local theater, which is, it was kind of almost like an auditorium. And yet it still had that feeling of being in a theater all the ropes backstage, you know, it's uh, computerized now, which I guess is the biggest difference, of course, but those ropes are still there, even if they're not being used, they're there and it's, it's comforting. Well, going back to, uh, you know, toward the beginning of your career, it it may surprise some people to know that your first big role 
wasn't the Waltons, but it actually came in your Broadway debut in 1969 with Chekhov's play, The Three Sisters. Now, that must have been an exciting time for you as an actress to be in New York and, and performing on such a big stage. It was uh, thrilling. You know, we were all very young. We were part of Bill Ball's company at, at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, which was the most dynamic and creative time of my entire theatrical career. We were doing sometimes two and three plays at a time in two different theaters. Sometimes we'd run back. The, one theater was called the Marines Memorial Theater, which was up one of the hills in San Francisco. And we'd do the act one in one theater and run down the hill and do act two and three in another play in another theater. And it was thrilling. It, it truly was. Now, the Waltons came along in 1972, and that that was certainly a pivotal moment in your professional career. However, this was personally a a rock-bottom moment for you. What brought about this low point for you? Alcohol and a divorce, and they were both intertwined, you know. Um, I was at a very low ebb. I was drinking too much. Um, because I was so incredibly sad at the end of my marriage. And, um, of course, the alcohol didn't help. And, you know, it was the breakup of a family. I think both my ex-husband Peter and I loved each other dearly, but we we couldn't seem to make the marriage work. And um, it was heartbreaking for both of us. And for the kids. I mean, I don't advocate divorce uh, for anybody. Um, especially when there are children involved. But sometimes it's necessary, unfortunately. Peter Donat was a wonderful actor, and um, he and I loved each other until the end of his life. So the kids never felt that we were bitter or, you know, they never had to endure that. And each one of the kids, I assume, took it differently and, you know, go through their own experience of what, what that divorce means. Yes, they do. In any family, I guess. I don't think anybody's cavalier about it. Maybe some people, but Peter and I were not. And we did remain good friends until his death. Relationships, I think, take a toll on any of us. You know, I've been through a divorce myself, but it seems to be particular with us actor folk. You know, there's just this old kind of stereotype about marriage is not lasting long. And that, why do you think that is that those of us in the performing arts, we can sometimes bounce around from these relationships and go through divorces? Do you want an honest answer? Absolutely. Well, I would say honestly that some part of us as actors, we have to maintain that inner child. We have to be childlike to some degree because we have to remain vulnerable. We have to use our brains to interpret it, you know, to try and understand a playwright and what he's trying to say and what the character is about. And I mean, there's some intellect involved, but basically we also have to remain childlike and open and vulnerable. And I think we're most artists are very sensitive people um, and sometimes just downright stupid. <laughs> yes, we <laughs> when certainly we're young, have those moments. You know, yeah. I was uh, I was the oldest of six girls, and I was very responsible. If anything, overly responsible as a young woman. But I wa- I was responsible on the outside, but inside I I was emotionally 
not mature. I was not an adult. I was only 17 when I got married, and I had my first kid when I was 18, and three children, and a very demanding husband by the time I was 28, I guess. And that's when we started in San Francisco, hoping to make our marriage work. You know, we thought maybe if we both worked together and we were in a different place, we'd been living in Toronto, Canada. So we moved to San Francisco and Peter had starring roles and I kind of was filling in, doing smaller parts and understudying. And then gradually I began to be given leading roles. And it it was really the most wonderful learning experience in the theater for me. Unfortunately, our marriage didn't survive. We did remain loving friends until the end. You had mentioned the alcoholism as well. How did that affect your professional life? Well, everybody drinks in the theater. <laughs> you know, this is was, true. It's really where I started um, was at ACT because after the show, there, there, there was a curtain call right across the street from the Geary Theater, and we all congregated there after the play just to kind of unwind. And I had a marvelous woman who lived with us who who took care of my kids and and me named Mrs. Blair. I always called her Mrs. Blair. She called me Michael. I called her Mrs. Blair, but she she had been a dancer. She never told me that until about after she had worked with with us for about eight years. She finally showed me a scrapbook where she had been a, a dancer herself. I never knew. But she loved us and she loved the fact that Peter and I were in the theater and she loved the kids and so you know, I knew my kids were being cared for, and Peter and I would go over to the curtain call after the show, and everybody drank more than I did at the time, and then I discovered bourbon, and I thought, oh, this is delicious. It's like eating candy. (laughs) And also, the heartbreak of, I knew my marriage was not working, and there was a lot of heartbreak and sadness involved, and, you know, you think maybe the alcohol will make it go away, and of course, in the end, it never works. And um, I moved to uh, Los Angeles and luckily at the Waltons. And it was just a lucky break. And I got sober and I've been sober since 1972. That's wonderful. And so it's interesting that you mentioned you came from a big family and the Waltons is all about a big family. So did it seem kind of uh, life portraying itself on the screen? In some ways, you know, I lived in Canada in the early days with Peter and we would go to Stratford and live in some farmhouse uh, that they rented out to the actors. And I had a ringer washing machine. and I baked bread. I made pies. I did all those things as a young wife and mother. And so I had all that experience. I knew how to knead dough and I knew how to use a ringer washing machine and um, diapers on the clothesline. I think that my own life experience was really helpful in that role of Olivia Walton because it was easy. Doing television is never easy. That's why they pay you well. Around the, was it the fifth or sixth season that you kind of pulled away and weren't in as many episodes? Yeah, I got tired of boring coffee. And bless them, the producers understood that, but they said, you know, you can't have an affair. We can't do that on the Waltons. So we want the mom in the shot. And so they had me pouring a lot of coffee and passing the salt, please. And, 
you know, drying dishes and whatever. You know, they, they did their best, but there was only so much they could give Olivia. And I think they did a darn good job, really, because there were some lovely shows that were interesting for me to do. But a lot of it was uh, just kind of boring. They say boredom is the most exhausting thing there is. Yeah, because there's an energy of being busy, of going from show to show. But those in-between moments where us actors were not doing anything can just seem excruciatingly long. Exactly. You got it. And and uh, I, it gave me a second family. I look back with the e- enormous gratitude for, for all of it. it. It turned my career around. And I adore everybody that was on that show. There were There were no bad apples. It was all, unfortunately, you know, it's not interesting. Uh, drama. There was no drama. There was mostly just a family, a second family, really. Hmm. If there was any drama, it was usually Ralph or me. (laughs) We were the children and the children were the adults. (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting how I've noticed that, that there's two types of child actors. There are those that kind of maintain that just kind of bubbly energy. It's like you can't calm them down. Or there are those that are almost like talking to your grandparent. And it's like, they're so wise and put together. It's like, okay, you're 10. Why are you talking to me like this? (laughs) You got it. That was Cammy. Even though she did like to play with salt on the table. She did a little, like to make little designs with the salt because (laughs) kids get bored too. Yeah, yeah. But really all those kids, every single one, they were just, I feel I love them as dearly, almost as I love my own kids. And I assume there have been both pluses and minuses throughout your career to being so associated with just that one show? You know, luckily, because I think I kept my theater, I hate to think of it as a theater career. It was it was what I did, and it was what I loved. If anything, the Waltons contributed to, I probably would never have gotten a Broadway show if it hadn't been for the Waltons, even though I, I auditioned like everyone else. I auditioned for Sisters Rosenzweig, which was after ACT, you know, The Three Sisters was my real Broadway debut in that sense. And um, I think even then I went in and replaced Jane Alexander. So anyway, I feel very grateful that the Waltons gave me a recognizable name that also gave me wonderful opportunities to be on Broadway and in regional theater, which I still do. I did a play up here at the little local theater. The Waltons was one of the most popular television shows during the 70s. And in 1975, the first year of the People's Choice Awards, the Waltons won for favorite dramatic series. Actually, they shared the award with another television show, Kojak. Here's Michael accepting the award on behalf of the entire Waltons production. When our show was created, it was to be a show about a family's struggle for survival in the Depression years. And little did we know how topical we would become. Um, it's, it's deeply gratifying to know one's efforts are appreciated. And, and this award is doubly valuable to all the Waltons because It comes from those people we try most to please, the television viewers. We thank you all for letting us into your homes and your hearts. Thank you. Now, during your television career, both in the 70s and 80s, you received four Emmys. And, of course, three of those were for the Waltons, your wonderful portrayal of Olivia. But your fourth one 
actually came from a show in the early 80s called Nurse that was a critical success, but it, it didn't actually do very well in the ratings, unfortunately, and lasted only about a season and a half. Yet, you still walked away with an Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actress. Was that a surprise to you to get that uh, for Nurse? It was a mixed bag because I don't want to say anything derogatory about the experience because it was an amazing experience and I think it was a good show. But, you know, we had L.A. writers writing for New York. A woman living in Harlem and sitting in her hot tub, you know, was a little bit, it was a constant struggle until we finally did get New York uh, writers who knew how to write for a woman living in Harlem, a nurse. You know, there are no hot tubs in Harlem that I know of anyway. <laughs> but, you know, I had to fight for things like in New York, you have to have locks on the doors, you know, and things like that, which were just minor things. But people were writing in L.A., um, and it did not endear me to Harvey Shepard, president of CBS at the time. He was in L.A., I was in New York, and I didn't handle it very well. The producer, Robert Holmes, said, if you want New York writers, you're going to have to walk off the set. And he advised that. So I did that. And um, what I should have done was get on a plane and call Harvey Shepard and say, can I take you to lunch and can we talk about these problems? And, you know, I was uh, I wasn't smart enough to know quite how to handle it. So I take full responsibility for what happened. And I didn't work again for 10 years. It was um, it was a tough time. It's interesting because I've had my own bouts of. um I worked for Disney World for a time, and there was a particular special event show. And I got a little big for my britches. I got a little like, well, it should be like this. And I had a disagreement with the director of that show and was not quiet about it. And looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, why were you so stupid? Like, like as you say, there's just sometimes a better way of handling things. Handling it. Yeah, that's yeah, what then, I, I didn't handle it properly. Yeah. And I can... I understand and take full responsibility for what happened. Um, but, I, you know, it's terrible when you don't, all of a sudden, people are talking to you and saying, okay, we'll start work next Wednesday, and then then you never hear from them again, and, and you don't know what happened. And eventually, one of the associate lawyers in my lawyer's firm told my ex-husband, your wife is on a producer's list. Do not hire and of course, those lists do not exist, but of course they do. And for 10 years, I did not work in television or not for CBS. And I've only begun to work again in, in television, really. And I like it. I mean, I enjoy television as much as theater, really. I don't like the waiting. <laughs> what I love about theater is you go from A to Z in two hours, you know, and in television, you go from A to B to C. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will say the rehearsal process, like when you're in a theater rehearsal, you're there for a reason and you're you're on stage, you're doing your thing, you're being directed, you know, there, there's work. But when you're on set, you could be back in your trailer for two or three hours or more just waiting to be seen. As And yeah, and I, that drives me crazy. I feel like a caged beast. But, um, you know, when you're doing a series, it's it's harder because you don't, you know, you're doing it for like the Waltons was almost 10 years on, on the air. And 
I couldn't take it. I mean, I just couldn't take <laughs> the boredom of it. You know, we have wonderful memories of those days, but at times I, I thought I cannot pour another coffee. Now, certainly since the 70s, uh, women's roles have changed, and so they're not just pouring coffee and doing the dishes, as you had to do. How have you seen the growth of, of women's roles and presence on television? Well, it seems to me, and, and, and this is broad strokes, but it seems to me that you were either a good woman and you had kids and did the dishes and baked bread and did all that, or you were a slut dynasty. And, and of course, to me, pouring coffee all day, dynasty looked pretty good. Um, <laughs> you know, Joan Collins had a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, sometimes I thought I cannot endure another day of rolling out a pie crust. And, um, and yet, again, you know, in retrospect, how lucky I was. And, and I formed lifelong friendships with these kids who are now middle-aged people with their own kids and they're all there's not a bad apple in the bunch i i'm so grateful for that and ralph and i were very close and um i miss him terribly and his wife is a good you know i have so many things to be grateful for and indeed i am at the time i wasn't always so grateful yeah it's always easier to look back those little details of that bad day or that bad moment or argument, you know, those start to kind of fall away. And what rises to the top, we hope, are those good memories. And it sounds like that that's what's happened for you when it comes to the Waltons for the most part. You're so right. And what what I often forget is that I had five boys at home. I had three of my own and two kids that were living with us who were not getting along with their families. And they lived with us, you know, temporarily. And I was raising my boys and then spending nine to 12 hours on a set every day. And when I'd get home, my kids were waiting for me with all their problems, which, you know, they needed to be attended to. So I devised a plan where I, I, I said, look, I'm not there. There were no cell phones, by the way, in those days. And I would say, if I'm not there, write your problem down, put it in my jewelry box. I'll read it when I get home and we'll talk about it at breakfast. And they did. And I'd find some notes saying, I hate you. I hate the fact that you're working and you're not here when I need to talk to you about something. Or I love you, Mama, so much. And, you know, I should have saved those. I've saved a lot of their drawings and things, but I, I didn't save those little scraps of paper, which are so delightful. Even even the ones that said, I'm mad at you. you know, they, were, <laughs> they were cute, too. One thing that I didn't know before this interview was that Michael also did a musical years ago with noted Broadway director Jack O'Brien. She shares that story and more in the final five bonus episode, which is available to supporters of this podcast. Go to whyillnevermakeit.com and click the support button to learn how you can get bonus content each week like the final five questions and audition stories. And during December, you can join for free. So go to whyillnevermakeit.com between December 1st and December 31st to get one month of free access to all the bonus content available just for you. After the Waltons, you had that show Nurse for a certain amount of time, and then 
Your television career was on hold, so to speak. And so you did go back to Broadway again. And, and actually, over the three decades after The Waltons, you appeared in a Broadway show in each of those decades. And so I'm curious, what kept you coming back to the stage? Well, during the two hours that you're on stage, nothing else matters, hopefully. I mean, sometimes your mind, you are distracted if something big has happened at home. But but if you immerse yourself in the moment on stage, you can't be thinking of something else. You've got to be there, as you well know. In a way, it's it's a form of escape, but it's also um, it's like a meditation almost. It's like you enter another world, and and it's magical. So I wouldn't trade for, for the world. And I got to know Arthur Miller and Edward Albee and some of these great modern playwrights of today. And, and lucky me, sitting on the grass at Williamstown with Arthur Miller. How many people have that privilege? Um, and Edward Albee became a friend. And he came to see me in a play I was doing off-Broadway. Uh, it was called Outgoing Tide. And uh, he came to see it. And he wasn't well. And I thought he was going to sort of be the old Edward Albee that most people think of. But, um, you know, he was sobbing at the end of it. And he said, that's me. That's my life. It was it was a play about Alzheimer's, actually. And, um, you know, struggling with cognizance and knowing that you're losing your brain function as well. And it was it was really a lovely play. And uh, he was incredibly moved by this play. And it was moving to me to see Edward Albee sobbing at the end of the play. Mm. My own grandfather died of Alzheimer's. And just that title, Outgoing Tide, does seem very fitting as to what happens mentally. Because it's you, you, you can see it going, but it's, it's this slow progression out. That happened with... My ex-husband, Peter, uh, luckily he lived to be 92 and his his present wife, his now widow, Marika, took wonderful care of him. So, you know, he was surrounded by loving people. And my son was on one side and Marika was on the other when holding Peter's hands when he died. And during his Alzheimer's, when he, you know, wasn't Peter anymore, really, he still was sweet and touching and he was loved and cared for. Not everybody gets that. As much as we're professionals, we're artists, we're these actors, and as you said, getting to meet icons like Arthur Miller and Edward Albee, there is still the personal connection. And I'm sure that's what you remember more than anything professional or anything that happened uh, with those uh, playwrights. Absolutely. Arthur Miller came into the first day of rehearsal, and I was awed. You know, Arthur Miller, I'm in the same room with Arthur Miller. And he sat down and said, what can I do to help? And, um, you know, we did several plays together. One that didn't do very well. And for some reason, I can't remember the name of it. I guess I blocked it out. Um, but he was a, an immense presence. I mean, when he walked in the room, you knew somebody had walked in the room. I mean, your listeners may not even know who Tyrone Guthrie is, but I had the privilege of working with him and with Michael Langham at the um, Stratford Festival in Ontario, Canada, and all these incredible, to me, theatrical icons. 
And one of your most recent stage productions was the On Golden Pond National Tour. How did you enjoy touring life? Well, being with Tom Bosley was fun. I mean, you know, he's he was an interesting guy. So we had a good time. And uh, I, I remember the tour as a as a happy tour, not 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 bad. It wasn't a one night stand kind of thing. We got to be in one place for you know, weeks at a time. So it wasn't one of those nightmare tours. And I've been on those bus tours and stuff like that. But um, but it's always fun. It's always, there was a wonderful tour we did years ago from Stratford, Ontario. And it was like a high school tour where we did scenes in costume from Shakespeare and various scenes and stuff. It was beautifully uh, directed by Michael Langham. But it was so much fun. Just being on this bus with all of my fellow actors, Canadian actors, and stopping at various places and kind of theaters and trying to figure out overnight practically what what was going to work and what wasn't. And those are the days I wish for every young actor, those experiences. And I was with my husband at the time. And so, you know, we didn't have to go through those terrible separations that actors have to go through. Right, right. Now, you'd mentioned that you wish that kind of thing for every young actor, but there's that old saying that theater keeps us young. Have you found that to be true? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> I, I feel it. Um, but when I'm on stage, I don't. I feel, you know, the adrenaline starts pumping and there's excitement. So in that respect, yeah, I suppose it does. Yeah, but the touring life is so much more than just the performance. It's also about that day-to-day getting in the, the bus or the plane and traveling from this location to that location, new hotels. So it can wear on anybody. Well, it's all about the work and what, you know, That I find moving and television harder to do and be away from home. Uh, whereas in theater, you become a little family and you're dealing with usually wonderful words. And if you're lucky, I guess. And so that I just have theater to me is, as I said, it's my church. And mm-hmm. I also go to church with my husband. It's not like <laughs> I, I'm not an atheist. <laughs> but It's my second church. Let's put it that way. And so many people that I know in theater would feel the same, and there is a spiritual aspect. You know, whether or not you're religious or or whether you practice or or don't practice, there is a spirituality and energy to the theater that I think is very unique. And how has that affected your personal life and helped you grow as a person? Well, I think the plays have helped me grow because they are— most of them are great literature and dealing with the human condition, if you will, in general, the human condition. And so you learn from that because you're studying and you're trying to figure it out and figure out your character. and What is the playwright trying to say? And, and how does that affect you and your heart and your brain and every part of you? Um, and being at ACT was, for me, a breakthrough, I guess into leading roles in wonderful plays, um, sometimes two at a time, and then rehearsing a third. I mean, you're so honed by then. And 
this thing that Bill Ball created was so incredible because we had movement classes and dance classes and voice classes and singing classes with these wonderful people who were just theater people and having so much experience at a young age and which which holds you for the rest of your life. When it comes to the theater experiences and the television experiences that you've had, is there one that you've been able to express yourself more in than the other? I think theater, because most people don't know that comedy was really my strong suit when I was in the theater, and I get to to be funny in the theater. And television, I'm sort of locked into, or was anyway, locked into authoritarian, responsible, womanly roles. You know, Olivia did kind of set a standard for me nurses and nuns and <laughs> I was sort of classed in a certain role which I don't regret I mean I'm very grateful because it paid for kids private schools and and all of that I'm very grateful for them but the theater I get to be wild and wacky and play complicated difficult and fun women and characters, especially now that I'm older. Unfortunately, I don't find that American playwrights write interesting characters for older women the way the English playwrights do. I mean, Vanessa Redgrave and Judy Bench and those wonderful actresses get get to play interesting characters in their 80s and 70s and so on. And we sort of get to wear a white wig and be nice or evil. You know, we don't get to be kind of eccentric, interesting, funny women, you know. I mean, I just finished a show called uh, Playing Jeffrey Dahmer's Grandma, and I'm in a white wig with glasses. And I mean, it's a nice character, and I'm very grateful. I had a good time. But um, it's not the same quite as some of the fun stuff that the English actresses, older actresses get to do. And as you look back over your career, as we've tried to do in this episode, what is it that stands out the most to you? What are the highlights that you pick out? Friendships, I guess. Families. Um, I'm blessed with a wonderful family of my own, but, you know, I, I have made so many good friends. And that intense uh, connection that you have when... I mean, there have been bad times, too, but mostly good. When I look back on I forget the bad stuff, and I focus on all the wonderful people that I've met before the Waltons actually happened, you know, in Toronto and Canada, at Stratford, Ontario, and all the people that have remained lifelong friends. Rosemary Harris, we did all over. We've done a couple of Edward Albee's plays together, and Ellis Rabb, He's a wonderful Broadway director. He directed so many incredible plays. Bill Ball and these incredible theatrical geniuses. Where Rehearsal was an extraordinary experience, both personally and professionally. And then to work your ass off and have it flop is heartbreaking. And to work your ass off and get good reviews for the play and your performances is heady. And being on Broadway was, of course, the highlight looking out of my window and seeing the Music Man lights across the street when I was doing Best Man with Jeffrey Richards. And, you know, I, I, there's nothing like being on Broadway. I just, I don't, there, there really is nothing like that. 
Yeah, certainly for myself, that is the reason I moved to New York. And I know that's a, a reason why so many actors come to this big city is uh, is with those Broadway dreams. So uh, that is certainly something I'm still looking forward to in, in my career, to having that as well. I wish you have it. And I, <laughs> and I know if when you do, and you will, that it'll be a joy. I wish it'll be a hit for you, too, because being the best man was probably the highlight. And Sisters Rosenzweig as well. But I didn't create that role. Jane Alexander did. And so to be in on the beginning of something is really heady. It's heady stuff. It's drinking. Absolutely. Well, this has been an absolute joy to talk to you, Michael. I I really appreciate uh, you coming on the podcast and sharing your life experiences and career with us. It's my pleasure, and you made it easy, and that's what it's all about. Thank you. (laughs) Good, good, good. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me and Michael for our discussion about her amazing career and the struggles she's faced along the way. I certainly hope you got as much from our conversation as I did. And if so, then please share this episode with anyone who you think could benefit from Why I'll Never Make It. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Publicity provided by Imagine PR Group. Incidental music featured in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.